welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This is the second part of a three-part discussion with my brother-in-law, Michael Horrigan, about favorite 80s movies, the state of streaming services today, religion, books, movie theaters, and much more. Michael is a PhD student in American politics at Washington State University in Pullman. We will be re-entering the discussion just before we left off at the previous episode. Um, and I'm also just, I'm deeply a fan of, um, Villeneuve as a director. Right. I, I think he's a fantastic director. I put it this way. I never would have thought somebody could make a high quality sequel to Blade Runner, let alone something that I thought was maybe not equally a masterpiece, but a, you know, a truly great film. Mm-hmm. And he did. Yeah. And he did it in a way that was not dismissive of the first film but was distinctly its own film. Right. It embraced it and and kept its distance at the same time. Which, which is, is so hard to do. It's a, it's nearly impossible to do. It's a it, it literally is running on a bl- edge of a blade <laughs> and he did it. And 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 I have to admit that I didn't get the chance to see it when it was when when we played it. I actually played it at my theater and we showed it in our our premium large format theater, 400 seat theater with an 80 foot wide screen that's the way to see that movie and i would pop my head in to see spits and pieces but i didn't actually give the chance because again i don't always have time to sit and watch a two and a half three hour movie and that one and then and then when you're working at a theater that it's like a 20 mile commute which and los angeles can be an hour and a half hour 45 minutes on my days off i don't want to drive to work to see a movie for free and I'm not going to go to a movie to pay, to some other theater to pay to see a movie that I can watch for free. So I'm in that dichotomy of, you know, and and so even though I get into movies for free, I almost never went to the movies the last three years I worked in the movie theater because of that commute. And that's a totally fair way to feel. I mean, I'll admit that I missed it just because my life was a little bit hectic at that time. And so I didn't get to it until home video. Mm-hmm. And I regret that. Like, because it is such a beautiful film. Yeah. And, and that just goes to the power of what watching something at home versus watching something in the theater. Actually, going back to the Cinerama, I was thinking about a story, um, my former partner and I. So I saw Fury Road in theaters the summer it came out. Right. Because I was jazzed up to see Because it's Mad Max. Because it's a new George Miller movie and like, yeah. let's go. Um, I saw it in theaters, adored it, thought it was a five-star masterpiece, mm-hmm. perfect. Comes out on home video. I want to show it to her. I say, hey, I'm going to bring this. Can mm-hmm. we watch this? We watch it. We get done. She's like, I thought it was really good, but she didn't quite get why I had loved it on the level that I you, loved it. You, Your sister and I are the exact same thing. I'm, but I actually, but we were living in, um, we were living in Pleasant Hill up in the Bay Area at the time. Uh, she was going to Berkeley, and I was managing a theater in Walnut Creek, which is the next city over. So going to see a movie at my theater was a, a five-minute drive. Yeah. And so even though I'm not a fan of Tom Hardy, it's George Miller, Mad Max 4, I'm going. And and I took her, and she was reticent to see it. And when it was done, I was literally a puddle of mixed emotions all happy joyous excited thrilled but it was just i could i was not human 
at the end of that movie, I was just this, I was literally inside out. All those emotions. <laughs> and it's like, because how, how often do you get a sequel to a movie that has been 30 years since they last told that story that you're the, the, the same director, you know, um, the, the uh, Byron Kennedy, his co-producer, the first three movies that had died since then, you know, he's working with a whole new team. He's doing, you know, and to have that film be better than the preceding three movies is amazing when you, especially when you consider how many other sequels of long past movies, you know, because my, my general theory is if you can't make a sequel in three to five years, just forget about it. There's because 99% of those afterthoughts are just not worthy. But then you get a Mad Max Fury Road. You get a Blade Runner 2049 that kind of, you know, is the exception that proves the rule. And so, and so now he's about to make allegedly another one, and I don't care who's in it, I don't care what it's about, even though it's not going to be a Mad Max story per se. It's you know now you're going to follow the Charlize Theron character, even though it's not going to be Charlize Theron. It's going to be her before all of it. So it's just like it's just interesting to see how his mind works and how it snakes around time, and and fits. How do you, you know, yeah, how, but where does Fury Road fit into everything else, you know, 30 years hence? Because, you know, in the movie, it's obviously not 30 years later, because Mad Max would be probably Dead Max by then, <laughs> considering the world he lives in. So I'm just, I, 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 I will go wherever George Miller wants to take me, even if it's Happy Feet too. I was going to say, so we, I, I had that deep love, and I showed it to her, and she was just like, oh, like, it was pretty good. And then Cinerama used to do, the week before the Academy Awards, they'd right. do a repertory thing where they would show every best picture. Yeah, yeah, for... we, we did that in my theaters for years. Yeah, yeah, and so they, especially because it was a downtime for them, their single screener, right. they'd still throw their single screen, and so Fury Road was going to be showing, I said, okay, we're right. going. I bought two tickets, we were in the bottom bowl, a couple rows in, mm -hmm. watched the whole movie, Back to the seat, getting getting rattled with right. with everything they got. Movie gets over. She turns to me. She goes, "I get it now." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she said, "I need." It. She's like, "I needed that experience because when you get that full experience in a theater of what Fury Road is with the sound design yeah. and the music and, the and that theater and, specifically, and that theater being the best possible theater, right, with the best sound and the best picture quality." I regret that I did not get to see the um, black and chrome version there. Yeah. They they did it. I would have at least liked to see it on their screen. Yeah. Um, but I still really appreciate that I was able to take her to that. And she said, she was like, that I get why that's a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Because the coming back to a thing we've talked a lot in this about, like the theatrical presentation, so much can push something over that edge, right? Sometimes in a comedy, it's the audience. Sometimes in the action, it's the spectacle of it and being able to take it in at that size and yeah. that scope. And that's what, the, I mean, when dude goes out to the Namibian desert to just shoot this stuff with actual cars, mm -hmm. that's what he wants you to do. And it has value when you do it, right? Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't get that quality. And 
that's why we're willing to follow him because he's willing to go to that craziness point where I don't know if you read it. The New York Times did the whole oral history of the production. Oh yeah, I read it. I read it when it came out. And... Yeah, and and, <laughs> and and nothing I read made me go, yeah, no, that doesn't. I'm like, yeah, no, I believe that everyone involved was probably miserable with each other, mm-hmm. and that George is a lunatic, but. That's Look what he created. That's what you get when you give a lunatic $130 million <laughs> and send him out into the Namibian desert. Yeah. Um, and that's why we're able to get that because he finally had those resources, right, mm-hmm. to unleash this vision of what this has always kind of been in his mind. Right. And so I'm willing to follow him wherever he wants to take that. And I would be more concerned about this, and I've talked about this with some other friends, that they're like, oh man, I don't love that it's a Furiosa prequel. And I'm like, look, I would be more concerned about it if it was the studio with some hired gun people right. saying, we're doing a Furiosa prequel because we think people really like Furiosa. This is what George wants to do. If this is the story that George thinks is next, that is the next story that's at the fore of his brain, mm-hmm. then I don't see how we get a lot of ground to com- to, to com- critique that. I mean, I, I like, I'm just going to throw out a random director who I actually like. Uh, what they've done. Uh, Joseph Kaczynski's Furiosa Rising would not be the same movie as George Miller's Furiosa Rising because George Miller has lived with those characters for over 40 years now. Oh, so, yeah. Or some of those characters. Obviously, Furiosa. Less. Less, less but, but, but just as I, he's lived in that world. He created that world. He's lived in that world. And so... I will trust whatever he... I will give him the benefit of the doubt. But, like, with Villeneuve, with with Blade Runner 2049, I have to admit, I was heavily skeptical. Oh, I was And that was another portion of why I didn't want to visit in a theater, because I didn't want my heart to break, because Blade Runner is such an important movie to me as... Not as just as... It... The person who I became because of that movie and other movies, that that to have a sequel come along and just not be anything remotely close to what it was trying to represent would have broken my heart. And that was the great concern with it, right? And that's when you're watching the the prep for it, and that's why I understood why there was skepticism. Mm -hmm. I shared that skepticism. I wasn't sure on it, right? I was like, I think this guy is a very talented director, and at least looking at the trailers, it looks like he's gotten at least some of the visual right. Right. Um, But I just don't know if he can pull it all together, because I think that Blade Runner itself is such a crazy balancing act, Mm -hmm. right, that is so difficult to have gotten it right, and... Lord knows we've seen Ridley miss enough times to know that, like, even the best directors, right? Because he has certainly made some great films, right. but he's also slipped. And it's very easy to slip when you're trying to thread that kind of needle. Mm-hmm. And Villeneuve, uh, Villeneuve is, was doing that with that. And because he was able to thread that needle, even if it didn't make money, I understand why Warner was willing to take the swing and say... Go do Dune. It's yeah. It, well, I thought. Oh, you're right. It is Warner Brothers doing Dune. I, for some reason, it was in my head that it was a Universal movie because of the because of the because of the the previous version. version. Yes, yes. Okay, so what's your fourth movie? Top uh, five. 
top five. So I'll grab another one out of the list that you just gave me. Uh, I will go with Raiders, mm-hmm. which is, again, one of those ones that I can always put on. And that one, it is just like the set pieces. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is I can't watch just one of them because once I start it, mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm like, oh, well, it's just a couple more minutes until this set piece. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's just a couple more minutes until the yeah, airplane fight. No, you cannot, you cannot sit down. It's Oh, it's a couple more minutes till the well of No, souls. you cannot sit down and, <laughs> and watch a portion of Raiders. <laughs> no, it, it, and part of that is the editing of the film, right? Mm-hmm. It is so fantastically propulsive. Mm-hmm. It's not a short movie, right? In my head, I don't think of it as as long as it actually is. I want to say it's north of two hours. It's, it's, I think it's like 118, 119. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 and it, the original Star Wars is like this, too. 121, I do know that for a fact. Yeah, and that I don't feel those movies feel like that length because they're edited in such a way that they just keep getting you it's a roller coaster machine that just keeps paying off constantly right Raider is 115 minutes yeah and it just it is always moving and that's the thing right when you're watching you're like i could turn it off but it's like two minutes until this other thing that i really love and that's why it becomes impossible to turn away from because it know you know once you've seen it, you know that it's always going to be paying off. And the first time you see it, which, God, I envy anyone who gets to do that for the first time. Yeah. Like, you don't know that all those payoffs are coming, yep. right? And so it's just, you know, my brother always makes a joke about you eat fast food. And it's just pinging your brain like light bulbs because right. it's all the things you want. That movie is doing the same thing. It's lighting your brain up like a pinball machine yeah. because it's delivering everything you want on a visceral sort of spectacle level and it's doing it with a character that you inherently like mm-hmm. and a lot of that is the Harrison Ford presence right. it's helped immeasurably by Karen Allen mm-hmm. who god I love Karen Allen well, who doesn't <laughs> no one as far as I can tell and it's why it's the bore of a bummer that Karen Allen didn't have more of a career after the 80s right. um, but like you just you watch that movie and I don't know how you can watch it and not be like, this is a perfect, just joy machine of a film. Mm-hmm. And it, I can't remember what beat it for Best Picture, but it... Well, uh, 81 was um, Chariots of Fire. Yeah. Now, and and, uh, and I have to admit, uh, I, I actually do really like I, Chariots of Fire. That's not... I, it, is I should, not it is not better than Raiders. I should be very clear. Yeah, that's not me bagging on Chariots yeah. of Fire and calling Chariots of Fire. A lot of people bag room. on Chariots of Fire because it beat Raiders mm-hmm. for Best Picture. I will admit, I like both movies. Raiders is the best movie of 1981. Period. Mm-hmm. Full stop. End of paragraph. Close the damn book. Raiders is perfect. Raiders is perfect. And 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 I, I, I struggle with the thought that Harrison Ford came into Raiders three weeks before production even began. But it's just like to know Tom Selleck, 
from Magnum and all the stuff he's done then, and then to think of him as Indiana Jones is impossible for me. And now Spielberg must have seen something in him. I can see it too. I can, no, I'm, I'm saying I cannot see it. See, I'm saying I can't. I, I can de- I can see what Spielberg would have seen because he's got a charm. He's got enough of a roguishness yeah, to it. He's him. got the charisma to spare. He's got the charisma to pull it off. And I don't know that he necessarily has the world weariness that you get with Harrison. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that helps it feel more lived in. Mm-hmm. I think that Selix would have felt a little bit more fresh-faced. It might have felt more like a first or second adventure right. than the way that Raiders feels, where it feels like this dude's been doing this for over a decade right. and like is beat to holy hell <laughs> for his troubles um, and has seen one too many things. And it's just kind of... But but he's still got his heart in the right place. in the right place, right? And we see how he becomes that person in the in the next one, which we definitely didn't make in another country because we were trying to not get arrested in America. Oh, so you did <laughs> listen to that episode? <laughs> oh, I I've known about that. Yeah, yeah that, no. one, that one. Yeah, like that's that's a um, that's a well known one. That's and, well known. And and it's truthful and and truly like I get and also I get why the movie is darker, right? I get why they end up in a darker place because personally they're all that's where they all are. They're all in a very dark place. Um, And but I ultimately think that neither sequel to Raiders is anywhere as good as Raiders. Nope. But. All of them are interesting films and worthwhile films of watching in their own right. And yes, I'm going to throw Crystal Skull in that. Wait, wait, wait. Crystal Skull, what's that? I know, I know. I like Crystal Skull for doing what it's doing, which is that it's trying to be, and this is why I think audiences struggle with it, it's trying to be a 50s sci-fi story. All the other ones are 30s adventure stories. And it's a really fun 50s sci-fi story. But I get why people are like, why is Indiana Jones in my 50 sci-fi story? Well, the, but to me, that's just Doc Savage stuff. And I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, you can throw Doc Savage in a, in a sci-fi story. It's not going to, like, make me right. look at it weird. And, and then, you know, and then you get to the young Indiana Jones adventures that they made for, for ABC in the early 90s. And, you know, and, and it kind of, and that character fits that era. And for me, the problem with, with Crystal Skull is... Not so much the script, um, and and if you ever read the original Frank Darabont version before it was called Crystal Skull, I can't remember the name of it, but I read it like in 2005, 2006. I may still have a, a PDF of it, but it's amazing how much of Darabont's script is the final version of Crystal Skull, and he didn't get screenplay credit, which is just bizarre. Because the most of the uh, opening sequence, including the fridge, is in Darabont's script. Oh, so much of the final movie is in Darabont's script. Which, and I, like I said, I can't remember the, the title right now. But it's like, but most of the problem of the movie for me is that character of Mutt, where whenever Mutt is on screen, there's a tonal shift and. I'm not saying it's specifically Shia LaBeouf's fault, even though I really don't like him as an actor. I can't think of it. And, and I've generally avoided him as an actor because 
Uh, same with uh, Franco, either of them. I just there's just something about the personality that just shuts me off. But in general, but there's just, but the character of Mutt is so underdeveloped to almost any other character from any other movie in the series, including Willie in 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 Temple of Doom. Mutt is just he's he's not a very well formed character. And I think it was because it, and and I don't remember if Mutt's even in the Darabont script. I think he might have been added later. But it's just a, just so it feels like Mutt was thrown in there because you needed or they felt they needed a young star to bring in a young audience because by that time the character was 26 years old, 25, 26 years old. And you, or actually 27 because it came out in 2008. But I think that's what the thinking, I think it was a cynical. That, look, I'm not going to disagree with you on that mm -hmm. point. That I think that you're right to point out that that's probably a cynical feeling of we need a younger character because if we don't have that, all we have is an old dude and an mm -hmm. old lady and yeah. an older dude. An older rather, dude. Running around the jungle. Right. Um, or setting up the, uh, another set of adventures with this new character. In the hope yeah. that we can maybe do that. And, yeah. and I think that some of it is, I don't know that if you want somebody who's going to give off a similar vibe to what Ford gives off or to what Alan gives off, because if you're casting their child, child. which is essentially what you're doing here, mm -hmm. I don't know that LaBeouf is the right fit. And that... I don't quite share your full sentiment that I actually think he's got talent as an actor in the right places. Um, and I feel similarly about Franco. I think that the problem is, is too many people assume that they can do too many things mm. or that they're just more interested in whatever it is they've got going on. And like, that's fine. That's their business. I'm not going to judge them for that. But at the same time, like, yeah, it can make me be less interested in what they have going on because it's more just what they're interested in doing. And I'm right. like, if that intersects with something I happen to be interested in watching, great, right? Like, I haven't gotten around to it, but I have friends who speak very highly of his performance in Honey Boy, mm -hmm. um, whose opinions I generally trust. Right. And I'm like, and I can see why both, I can see why he would be good in that and why that would matter enough to him that he would put in the effort to be good in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, and he better be good. Then he wrote the damn screenplay. It's based <laughs> on his life. It better be damn good. Well, and so if you're playing, essentially, you're 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 crafting your own story. You better know that story pretty damn well. And but that goes to that is what I'm saying. You know, I'm like that's a point of if you're gonna do this, you better it better be material that matters to you. And I think that those people tend to give better stuff if you're doing something that matters. And sometimes, particularly like if we're talking to someone like Franco. It's just like this sort of, how much effort are you getting tonight, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I watch a lot of wrestling, and so I think of it in like that. I, you're giving me the, like, I can't believe you still do that. <laughs> I completely understand it, True. but but I, I do, right? I don't watch a lot of American stuff. I try to watch more Japanese at this point. But when I think of that, I think of wrestlers because, right, a wrestler can be really talented. Mm -hmm. But sometimes... They're going to know all, like, use a Japanese example, like, all right, I'm working a house show in Gunma, which is some fishing village in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> in the middle of the tour. I'm not going to, like, give my maximum effort here, right? Right. But if I'm working the show 
at the, the Tokyo Dome. at the Tokyo Dome or the Nippon Budokan. Right. I'm gonna work my ass off right. to give the best possible performance. And I sometimes wonder that, and some wrestlers are worse about that than mm. others, right? Okay. And I think that actors can have very similar things, right? As performers, mm. right? Sometimes because something matters more to you or because the material or whatever, you know, your opponent in wrestling or material as a script, as an actor or character can connect more. Mm-hmm. And when you get that, you get this sort of elevated performance. And it's why sometimes we look at people and we're like, man, how was so-and-so so good in this movie, but so mediocre in this, this, and this? Mm-hmm. It's like, because sometimes people either are trying harder mm-hmm. because they're like freaked out by everybody around them right Right. like i think of used cars in this case Mm -hmm. with um the nfl guy's name is escaping me the guy who plays the mechanic oh god i'm blanking too yeah i can't remember his name but like he's not a professional actor right and he's on this set with garrett graham and kurt russell and jack warden (laughs) like these guys are great and so he is, feel, and he's feeling. Um, even Michael McKean is showing up. Mm-hmm. You got Lenny and Squiggy. Like he's having to bring this extra thing, right? Like Jack Warden, as we're listening to used car episode, apparently Jack Warden put the fear of God into him on like the first day of shooting, right? Because he was talking too slow. And Jack Warden, he was like, "What?" Jack Warden was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Mm-hmm. And he's like. Oh, you gotta talk slow so you get more screen time. And Jack Warden goes, "No, no, no! You gotta say your lines as fast as possible so they can't cut around you." <laughs> <laughs> I've been in this business for thirty years, kid. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like that's sometimes I think that people can come up either because they're motivated by the director or by the people they're working with or just by the material they're working with. Mm-hmm. And I think that that can give you this elevation that can sometimes move something beyond what might be a baseline of talent for somebody. Right. I mean, with with Franco, you know, I watched Freaks and Geeks when it came out in 2000, and I saw the Spider-Man movies he was in, and the, and the, other, and the James Dean TV movie he did, and there's just, there's, uh, there's just, there's a, a touch of, like, cynical sarcasm in his being that just... I can I don't care for, and and you know he's my least favorite part of of the Raimi movies, the Raimi Spider Man movies. Um, I I like Seth Rogen. I've never seen the uh, the interview because I don't care for Franco. Um, I'm already have I don't understand the whole thing about the room, and I have no desire to see it. So the disaster artist, I don't give a damn about. I don't care how good of a movie the disaster artist might be. I just, I, I don't get the cult around the room, and I don't care to discover it. I, there are so many great movies I need to see before I die. Why do I want to bother seeing something that I know is an absolute piece of shit? And then why would I want to bother seeing a movie about the making of a film that is an absolute piece of shit? <laughs> Like I'm not gonna tell you you're wrong on that. Yeah. Um, no, you, well, it, what, what in I'll your say, opinion, it, 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 you have a different opinion. I'll I'll, I'll I'll say I haven't seen Disaster Artist either. Now I have seen a lot of the Franco and Rogan stuff, and I get the vibe you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. The cynical smug, none of this fucking matters mm-hmm. vibe that like Franco lives his entire life in as a gear. I'm pretty sure, um, as far as I can tell. 
Um, yeah, I get why that's off-putting. Like, it kind of is off-putting. I think it's more useful when put in service of a character who's supposed to be off-putting. And I think too often the mistake that Hollywood makes is they think he's actually supposed to be likable. Mm. He's not. No. Um, like, and that was before I found out all the terrible things that he's apparently done. Oh, allegedly. No. I'm using allegedly because I'm a former attorney and I... I understand. Let's just say because of my position as as both someone who used to work in the industry as a a PA and an AD and then somebody who deals with Hollywood people on on a regular basis for 20 years, um, I would be safe enough to lose some portion of that description. (laughs) And and because I'm married to a lawyer, that's all I'm going to say. Fair enough. And, but again, I think that that's a fun... Sometimes Hollywood can have a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is makes someone useful in a film, mm-hmm. right? Where they can deliver their best work. Because, like, I love Pineapple Express. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a great time. It works because you're not supposed to like James Franco's character. He's kind of awful. Right? Very awful. <laughs> like, and, and like I said... I, any scene in Pineapple Express that does not have James Franco, to me, is a very good scene. Everything with Franco, it's not that I don't like Franco or I don't like his character. It's just, it brings a different tone to that to that movie. And I don't think that, that David Gordon Green balances it as well as he could have. There's just, I think it was more like, I'm going to let Franco do whatever the fuck he wants. And I think that's, that, that might not, he needed to be ranked. I think that's my biggest problem with what I've seen of his, is that they allow him to chew the scenery to the point where it is unrecognizable at points. But, like, but, but there are so many Franco movies I haven't seen because I don't care about him. But the ones I have seen, it just seems to me that, they give him too much free reign because he has a certain aura about him or a certain way about him or a certain expectation about him. You expect James Franco to overact, so you're just going to let him overact instead of saying, okay, James, let's let's bring it back a little bit now. And I think that some of it is also that he has started to make the choice to only work with people who he knows are going to let him do what he do it the way he wants to right. do it. So he's either going to work with friends who are going to let him do it that way, or he's going to make his own movies. Right. Disaster artist, mm-hmm. right? Like he, if he wants to do that, he's going to have to make that himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of where it's at. And I think that that can become a risk for people where you can sort of get yourself caught down an alley mm-hmm. doing that. And I think that the better value perhaps as an actor is to say there's more value in being challenged mm-hmm. and in being asked to do different things, right? It's it's the question of I have I love and am fascinated by Tom Cruise's career. Oh yeah. But is Tom Cruise, because I think Tom Cruise has done a lot of very interesting films. I think he's given a lot of really interesting performances. Mm-hmm. But is Tom Cruise in a very different place as a performer? And a way we think about him, to your point, if he doesn't end up in Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Like, Top Gun fundamentally changes where he's at and what he's doing. Right. And shifts the direction of what he's doing. 
he continues to want to work with interesting directors and he continues to do that throughout his career, right? Like he makes a movie with Scorsese, obviously right after Top Gun. He also then makes a movie with Kubrick and mm-hmm. he, you know, makes a movie with P.T. Anderson. Oh, let's not go there. <laughs> I love that, but we'll, we'll, we can save that for another discussion at another time. But he's willing to make those, but he has to spend so much of this time being a movie being star. a movie star. And so when he's finally given the power to kind of spearhead his own franchise with the Mission Impossible series, what does he do? He turns them into director showcases mm-hmm. because that's kind of what he wants to be doing. But he's been stuck in this movie star rotation for so long, and so finally, then he's able to turn it over. And so you get things like De Palma's Mission Impossible mm-hmm. movie. And then Wu's Mission Impossible movie. And I don't love Mission Impossible 2, but I rewatched it recently, and you know what? That's way more of a John Wu movie than I ever gave it credit for when it came out. Like, that thing is just packed with John Wu-isms. Oh, yeah. It's, it's definitely a John Wu movie that, that shoehorned Tom Cruise in wherever it could. Yeah, where Tom Cruise was just like, I want to make a John Wu movie. Right. And was willing to let John Wu make a John Wu movie. Yeah. Where you just kind of had to fit him in around it. Right. And I also don't blame Danny Newton for hating him for that movie because... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, that, see, and that to me is this interesting thing. And it... Empire Strikes Back. Now, I've already talked about Empire in a previous episode, so I'm not going to get into too much detail. But to me, how you feel about Back to the Future is how I feel about Empire. Uh, I was, what, 1980? Again, I was 12 when it came out. And the, it was, again, it was a dark film. It was the but the way that it set up the characters that just blew me away because even though I'd seen a lot of movies by that point, I had never seen a movie that took the, these characters that I loved, that I cared deeply about, and put them all in some kind of jeopardy that didn't work out at the end and it killed me in a sense as a 12 to 15 year old having to wait three freaking years to see what happened to them that that was torture but but that's how but empire is one of those movies then and of course i'm talking about the original version fuck the special editions I am so glad that somebody went out of their way to create a nice looking version of an approximation of what the original movies could be. I was going to say, and of the special editions, Empire is the one that's the least fucked with. Yeah. Um, there's really no changes. Um, but the changes that were made just were meaningless. <laughs> I, I admit that the main reason I am grateful for the existence of the special editions is because 
when they dropped those in 97 and 98, I was 14, 15 at the time. Mm -hmm. And had obviously never had a chance to see Star Wars on a big screen. Mm -hmm. I had seen the films um, on home video in the original versions, even in the correct aspect ratio. But I've never had the chance to get that projected. And so, even if the CG there is a little wonky, and I know that... A little wonky. Especially in New Hope, it's real bad. But I get what they're trial running for, right? It's running the... It's figuring out how to make the effects work for Phantom Menace, which is coming in two years years. at at that point, right? It's getting ready for that. And in that way, I understand what he's going for. And I get why as a filmmaker that appealed to him, right? This idea that the movie was always in his mind sort of unfinished because he wanted to add these things to it. There's other times where I'm like, you're throwing too much at it, to your point. And so, I don't think I have the disdain for them that a lot of Star Wars fans do, but I also understand why the original versions hold that place, because those are the versions of the movies that we saw for so long. I grew up on those versions. I mean, I I don't know if I've said this story in, in, in any of the podcasts, but... When the original Star Wars came out in 77, um, I didn't see it first day at the Chinese. I did see it the second day uh, on that Thursday, the 26th. And then over the course of the summer, I saw it multiple times. Uh, And then um, I entered the fourth grade in, in 77. And my best friend at the time lived across the street from, from the school, Lowell Elementary down in Belmont Shore. And his dad was an executive at Fox. And they had the first VCR that I'd ever seen. And they had Star Wars on VHS because his dad was an executive at Fox. Yes, that is I watched Star Wars Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday after school for... I don't know, 42 weeks, however long the school, the, the school year was for fourth grade, we, at, when the bell rang at 3 o'clock, we went across the street to his house, popped, the, popped Star Wars in, and watched it. So I've seen the original Star Wars. By the time Empire came out, I had seen it at least 250 times. <laughs> and I am not embarrassed by that. And I've probably watched it 250 more times in the ensuing 42 years. Oh, I mean, like, it's... When I said Raiders is a perfect film, A New Hope is also a perfect film. Yeah. Right? It's the original version. Fuck the special editions. (laughs) But, 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 so when the special editions came out, I mean, I was playing at my theater. I was was, uh, a theater manager up in Santa Cruz County. Um, The theater that I was working at actually had the largest... Screen, uh, it was it was a, the Fox Theater in Watsonville, and of all the movie theaters in Santa Cruz County, it had the largest screen main screen because it was a converted single screen theater. But they left the main auditorium intact; they only split the balconies. So I still had a sixty foot wide screen. So watching a movie like Star Wars, like Twister, like Mission Impossible, um, Selena was fantastic because I'm watching it 
on a real movie screen. And I was going to say, I, I had the blessing, thankfully, when I was growing up, mm-hmm. that we had an old single screen movie house downtown. And mm-hmm. so that's where I saw all those Star Wars yeah. releases. And so, and so like, when, when I called my friends from high school, because, again, I'm still I'm back in Santa Cruz County where I went to high school. All my friends are still living there. I called my friends, like, we're watching Star Wars at midnight. Mm-hmm. And because, because in 1997, you didn't have midnight shows in small towns like Watsonville. No. Yeah, so Thursday night, okay, get down here around 11.45. I'm starting the movie at 12 o'clock. And I think I had 50 or so people watching the movie with me. And, yes, it was fantastic to be able to see Star Wars on a big screen again for the first time in I don't know how many years. 15? But the utter disappointment in the directions, the choices that he made. It's not that he, quote-unquote, raped my childhood. It's just that the choices that he made were so ill-conceived. The Jabba the Hutt stuff with the, the, the literally photoshopping Han Solo frame by frame to step on his tail. Air quotes again. You know, things like that. The the having of the the, the, the the whatever dinosaur horse walk in front of the, the land speeder as they're talking to the, 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 the stormtroopers. You know, you, you don't need to see his pig. You know, just like, why is that even there? It's just like there is the most of the choices that he made in the changing of the things. Why do you need to put a damn halo exploding from the Death Star? Wasn't the Death Star explosion exciting enough? I know about 100 million people who thought that it was fine just the way it was. <laughs> I both understand why he felt the way he did, and I also understand why audiences responded the way they did. Because, like, I had a similar response at the time, right? I was very grateful to be able to see those movies on the big screen, and I was excited for that. But I also was grateful for the fact that I had seen the versions as they had been presented. Mm -hmm. And years later, uh, when I may have been sailing the high seas of the internet, I may have gotten my hands on some decent quality copies from some laser discs. Mm-hmm. Um, might have even been missing the uh, or the episode for A New Hope bit on uh, the first one. Uh, <laughs> you can say despecialized editions. They're not a secret. Uh, I try not to. I may, or, I may or may not have them myself. As I say, I don't know where my where that ended up, um, unfortunately, but I had those for a while, and like I really enjoyed having that available to me again. Mm-hmm. And I think that both have value. I get why both as a we're doing something with the effects, and this is what I wanted my movie to be. Why George might want to have gone in a different direction, but I also get why. To your point, there's a lot of it that just feels extraneous. Yeah. The Java scene isn't extraneous as a scene, but the problem is is how it was shot and blocked doesn't work. Yeah. Um, how they dropped Java in and then how they dropped up, you know, it's like you can't just have it's just like yes, we know that he has a tail. <laughs> and and but and the way that it was blocked when it was shot in seventy six he was going to now be walking on what would have been Jabba's tail. How you could get around that? Well, you could have had Jabba facing a different direction. So 
you know, instead of having Jabba facing camera, you could have had for a moment, because he's talking to Solo and Solo's walking behind him, you literally could have had Jabba turning to face Solo as he's walking and then the tail is in the opposite direction. There were other choices to be made. But when I see that scene, or even think about it, because I, I, I haven't watched the special editions once since I saw it on my big screen at Fox Theater in Watsonville. And just, but but the, the impact that is just like, it just looked so bad. Because you were literally cutting and pasting, and you're doing it with software that, you know, may have been state-of-the-art at the time, but was not going to give you the effect you desired. There were other ways around it. No, that's completely fair. But but with Empire, Empire to me is what I judge every other Star Wars movie, including Star Wars, against. And Empire on my flicks chart is not just my number one movie of the 80s. At least at this moment, it's my number one movie. Because... As much as I've seen Star Wars and as much as I love Star Wars, Empire to me is still the better film. That's fair. I was going to say, Empire actually ended up just missing my list. Um, so I'm going to wrap up with my last one here. Okay. Uh, which is a movie that I revisit pretty much yearly. Okay. And that's The Breakfast Club. Like, I... For whatever reason, I understand that the movie speaks in generalities and stereotypes, mm -hmm. but there's also some truth in there, mm -hmm. right? Like at a deeper level that I don't know that John Hughes ever quite got to it again. I don't know that he had quite gotten to it before. I think he had made good movies before and he would make good movies after, mm -hmm. but I think that for whatever reason that was the story that he was needing to tell. Right. Um, and even if he was an older person, I think that he, because he had enough of that distance, but enough positive nostalgia, he could see the positives mm -hmm. and he could see the negatives. Well, I think his, his children were also around that age when he made the movie. Yeah, that always helps. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you that, that, when Breakfast Club came out, I was a senior in high school. Um, it was one of those movies that um, I could not... I can't tell you today why I was excited to see it, but it was a movie that I needed to see on opening night. And yes, I'm a movie geek, and there's a lot of movies that I, need, I, that I would prefer to see on opening night. There was something about Breakfast Club in February 1985. I needed to see that movie on opening night. And when we got to the Del Mar Theater in Santa Cruz, downtown Santa Cruz, where it was playing, the line to the box office. Now, I've been, I, I, I started at the theater, um, working at the theater a year and a half later. It would be my home base for a couple of years. I know what that theater is capable of doing with an audience. I never saw a line for any movie that played at that theater when I was working there. The way that I saw that line for that 715, 730, whatever show of Breakfast Club on opening night. The kids from Aptos were there. The kids from Soquel were there. The kids from Live Oak were there. The kids from Santa Cruz High were there. Every freaking junior and senior, it seems, from the entire freaking area. And in Santa Cruz, <clears throat> they only had five theaters in, in, in this, well, technically six with the Scotts Valley Theater. 
but there was only one theater playing Breakfast Club. You, you, you know, nowadays you, you, every theater every five miles is playing the same damn movies. But back then, in Santa Cruz in the eighties, you had one theater. You couldn't go to the Aptos Twin, which was 12, 14 miles away, and see Breakfast Club. You couldn't go to Scotts Valley and see Breakfast Club. You had to see it at the Del Mar. And so, knowing that there were all these other people like me who felt compelled to be there that night, the ele- that theater was sold out. That theater was packed. That theater was 100% sold out. Songs start, and then the layers start to come in, and the Bowie lyric comes up on the screen, and then, then it just the glass crashes and the crescendo of music and sound, and then you're on the football field. <clears throat> the place fucking erupted. He had us eating out of the palm of his hand before the first scene, and that is damn near impossible for any filmmaker. Just from the credits, just from that one song, and then the Bowie. Because you know, when you're 14 in the early in the mid 80s, Bowie is iconic. As I was gonna say, like think about that as this is somebody who's coming off of writing Vacation Mm -hmm. and then making 16 Candles, which was not that big of a hit. No, I mean, it was a perfectly solid grocer. It right. did well. It did well, and it did very good in, in, on home video just before sixteen or before Breakfast Club came out. And so, but that's, but both of those, as much as I might enjoy them and or poke at the problems they have, mm-hmm. what up, 16 Candles? Mm-hmm. Um, neither one is really leading you to believe that a movie like Breakfast Club is there, right? And even then, to your point of, you're talking about an audience full of, of juniors and seniors, and I was probably sometime in high school when I saw it for the first time. Mm-hmm. It hooks you so immediately with that opening mm-hmm. that you then don't even really... Like, it gives you a couple of montages here and there, but for the most part, it's a stage play. Mm-hmm. It's five characters in a room, in one room. talking right. for most of the film. Mm-hmm. This is not exactly what one would call on its face gripping teen entertainment, yeah, right? It's, like, it's not a teen sex comedy. It's not. It's <clears throat> not Sixteen Candles, which is a teen, teen sex, sex comedy. comedy. Like, and that's kind of <clears throat> what he had made his name. You know, he's a lampoon writer. Right. Like, that's what he does. And instead, he throws this thing that still has jokes and has this ability to understand the sort of revolved teenage thing, but wants to dig just that extra half step deeper into it. Mm-hmm. 
and actually say, look, these are people, right? They're not fully formed people, mm-hmm. and they're trying to figure out what the fuck it is that makes them who they are. Right. And the hardest thing they're running into is this idea that they don't understand it and everyone around them expects them to understand mm-hmm. it. And that feeling doesn't go away. That's a when I, that's why I say when at the top what works for me and why I love the movie so much is even as it is working in these stereotypes, it's getting to this universal truth mm-hmm. of the difficulty of being understood. And the difficulty of being a person Mm -hmm. and developing and trying to find your voice and what it is that makes you who you're going to be going forward. And not everyone succeeds in that inside the film. And that's okay, right? Because that's true, too. Right. That not everyone... And, and, you know, you can always ask the hypothetical, like, would these people actually still talk to each other on Monday? And the answer is no. No. Um, Absolutely not. But that doesn't matter because ultimately we know that even if they don't, they have been impacted by this day and by this moment. And we, by extension, as the audience have been. And so I think that's why it has a power that even though I'm now in my 30s, and obviously not a, a young man anymore. Right. I still go back to it year after year because I think that every year we're finding ourselves maybe a little bit more. And I think that that message still gets to me as I watch the film. Right. I mean, it's a movie that I I, I move in and out of. Like, when, when it came out on home video... I remember it came out on home video. And I... In... in like right around Christmas of '85, and even though it was priced at like ninety dollars, it was because back then. I was gonna say price to price to rent, not price, price to, to rent, price not, to rent, not price, price to sell. The, the the Tom Gunn, ironically, would be like the first major sell through title on VHS. I still had to buy the Breakfast Club when it came out on video, and I watched it regularly through my my first years my first year of college and then after I dropped out of college, you know, even working in the theaters, I, I watched it regularly for years, but it's not even in my top 20 right now, but I still love the movie. It's just because what, you know, the, the, who I was at 17 and who I am less than a week before I turned 53, I recognize that kid, but the movie doesn't, no matter what the movie had a hold on me at 17 I can still appreciate the movie for what it is but it doesn't hold the same sway for me no because like like for example like St. Elmo's Fire came out four months after Breakfast Club and can kind of be seen as a a sequel of sorts obviously different filmmakers different studios some of the same cast but for me it was like you know being in high school and watching Breakfast Club was was just a magical experience. And then I graduate from high school. Two weeks later, St. Elmo's Fire comes out. And it's, you know, it's like, what happens to you when you leave college? And I was about to start college. So St. Elmo's Fire had a sway on me in part because of the sway that the Breakfast Club had on me because I kind of saw him as a continuation of 
parallel stories. Obviously not the same characters. And But I lost this way of St. Elmo's Fire really quickly because it's not a good movie in any way, shape, or form. I, I wanted to be a writer at the time, so I very, very much identified with the, uh, with the writer character, Kevin. Um, and and uh, Andrew McCarthy, I kind of saw myself as an Andrew McCarthy when I was 17. Um, I'd seen him in other things, and, and just like I kind of identified with him a lot. So, you know, but, but, but Breakfast Club is a movie that held on to me for many years, but as I got into my 30s and then my 40s and now in my 50s, it doesn't hold me the way it held me at 17, 18, 19, 20, but I, can, I still appreciate it for the tight film that it was and, and realizing that it was a million dollar movie, literally. It was less expensive than 16 Candles because it was literally shot in one place. And, and there's no scenes outside of the school. Nope. There's not a single scene outside of the school. You don't see them getting dressed at school because a lot of those movies, you know... You get the scene outside of the school in the morning when yeah. they're dropped off, and you get the scene outside of the school when they're picked up, and but that scene is immediately outside of the school. It's, at, it's still on, at the, on the school grounds. It's on school But gr- you don't see Andy getting dressed in the morning. You don't... You there's... Know. You, or, I mean, you see, the, like, the movie gives you enough of a glimpse of the home life no. in the scenes where they're being dropped Rocked off up. at the top of the film that you understand everything you need to know to make the rest of the movie work, right? right. To make the conversation inside the library make sense, mm-hmm. you've seen how all of these no. people interact with their parents and or don't interact with their parents. And how they're struggling in this nature and ability to try and connect to adults in their world who aren't taking the time to understand them and see them as people who Mm -hmm. are worthy of that. And I think that even if the way that it resonates with me is different now than the way that it resonated with me when I first saw it, Mm -hmm. it still resonates with me that deeply because, and maybe some of this is the work that I do. Hmm. Right, so I teach college classes, and so I'm dealing with younger people, and I can see that same thing of there is value in approaching these people as people Mm -hmm. and giving them enough respect and enough of a belief in them and a desire and communicating that desire to say like, look, I'm here for you. I want to be here for you. That that then pays off coming back, and I think that that's still that's a the message that we get from it. I think as we get older, is not necessarily the message that we felt as kids, which is we connect with this idea that we're unseen. It's important to maybe connect to where Hughes is coming at it mm-hmm. from, which is I am older and I see you, right. And I am willing to validate what you have as real feelings, right? Mm -hmm. Because the movie, again, coming back to it might be cliche or whatever, but it never lessens the feelings of the characters Mm -hmm. and tries, it never belittles them or Mm -hmm. tries to make anything they're thinking or saying or doing seem less than or not as important as because they're just teenagers, Right. right? And in fact, has 
the janitor character go out of his way to explain, like, no, like, they're fine. You are the problem. You are the problem. You are the problem. And and that, to me, is, is Hughes standing in and saying, you are the problem if you do not see these people. It's why the big speech is, you will see us how you choose to see us. Mm-hmm. Because that's how we saw ourselves, and we're trying to get past that. Whether we're going to succeed or not, who knows? But really, it's telling you to just see beyond that. And I think that for people inside it, it's see beyond, you know, for younger people, it's see beyond the stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And for adults, it is just see them as people. Just see them. Just see them mm-hmm. and treat them with a dignity and a respect that you would treat anyone else. Right. Don't. Don't just belittle them and say, oh, they're children. Mm. It's like, no, five-year-olds are children. They lack rational thinking. Right. Like, these are miniature adults who are figuring out what it means to be an adult. Mm. And God, that's hard. Yeah. So, I don't know. Like, that's part, that's why I still see value in it and why I go back to it so much. Because I think that that is, that empathy. Mm is to you know roger ebert makes his point all the time it's one of cinema's great powers the ability to generate empathy right and i think that that's what breakfast club excels at and for me i think one of the now that i'm thinking about it one of the reasons why maybe breakfast club doesn't hold the same sway to me now um as it did the first few years is because of a movie we're gonna i'm gonna be talking about on the next episode which is the chocolate war which um as as I was writing the script for for that, which I'm still writing, which is one of the reasons I'm doing this episode this week, so I can delay that one another week because. Um, but I look at the, the the Chocolate War came out as I was turning 21. I'd never read the book, uh, not because it was banned at my school. It just was a, a story that I was not aware of that I was drawn to because of the actors involved. And because of Keith Gordon, and I'm going to save most of this for the next episode. But for me, The Chocolate War is a better high school movie to me than The Breakfast Club. But because The Breakfast Club came out almost four years earlier, that's why I've seen it more times. And Chocolate War is not as easily accessible as The Breakfast Club because Breakfast Club is from one of the biggest conglomerates, Universal, and and Chocolate War is from a little independent production company slash distributor that went out of business within a year of releasing their first movie, The Chocolate War. And the rights just keep bouncing around because you know, that's the way of independent cinema now is that your library will get bought by another library, which will be get bought by another library, which, I mean... It's it's a frustration, and you're right. It's not as like I have my Criterion Collection mm-hmm. Blu-ray of of Breakfast Club. Right, so do I. And it's a wonderful transfer. It's a beautiful transfer, and I'm so glad to have it. And I, I don't know. I felt when that was released, I felt a personal little bit of vindication mm-hmm. because I'm like, look, it's a Criterion title. I think that this movie too often gets very easily belittled 
because it's a high school movie, mm-hmm. because it's a teenage movie, right? It's a movie that's only supposed to work with you for so many years, and then eventually you will discard it, mm-hmm. like Garden State. Right. What up? <laughs> <laughs> a movie that I deeply loved when I was of the appropriate age, right when it came out, and which I, when upon revisit, yeah. does not in any way hold up as a film. Hey, I was, I was, I'm 15 years older than you. And it, I, I loved the Garden State when it came out, and I think a lot of it comes from how he married the the music that he decided to use for the movie into the movie. No, a I, lot of the movie, I and and I have not seen Garden State since two thousand four. Don't <laughs> I, I haven't? But I but I think what it is, but the soundtrack itself, I still have the soundtrack. And, and I still listen to the soundtrack on a regular basis. Not every song is golden. No, but I would agree with you. I think that that's some of what made that work. But I think, getting back to breakfast school, I just, I think there's more there than you might find in a typical teen right. film. I mean, when and, it came out on Criterion, you know, whatever day it came out, and I usually wait for the Barnes & Noble sale to get my Criterion so. I paid full price for The Breakfast Club. Uh, your sister was working late that night, so I bought it. I watched the entire movie. I watched all of the deleted scenes, and that's like an hour. That's like almost another movie in itself. Um, and I would love to see somebody put all of that together and make it look good enough. I would love to see the full cut with all the deleted scenes put in. To, appropriate, to an uh, appropriate level. I wish that John was still with us because okay. I think that John would have been interested in that, mm-hmm. and I think that Criterion certainly would have been willing to give him the opportunity. Yeah, I, mean, I think but, it, I think if they had, if he were still with us and they had gone to him and said, "Hey, would you be interested in in cutting together a director's cut mm-hmm. of this with the deleted scenes put back in?" Now, I'm sure he had pretty strong control over his cut. Yeah. At Universal at that point, um, not quite as strong as he might have yeah. after it, but I just, yeah, there's, the, that is, was such a hit and continues to resonate so strongly beyond, even though it's not fast-paced in the world. Like, if I want to think about, like, the movie that to me best encapsulates high school, right? The high school experience. It's probably like Fast Times. I was going to say right? Fast Times. It's Fast Times. And, and that's because fat or Fast Times or Dazed, um, which Dazed and Confused, which is one of my all-time favorite films of all time. I just, I love that movie. And what I love about those movies is those get into the craziness of what, like, day-to-day antics can be, right? Or, like, what, like, the last day of school can feel like. Mm-hmm. And Breakfast Club isn't as interested in communicating the high school experience as it is in communicating... A human experience. The teen experience, yeah. right? And it's trying to tell that very serious kind of drama, which isn't what we expect from that type of film. And I think that... It's weird in that it is kind of that curveball, but to your point, in terms of the timing and the original release, it's so perfectly placed in this idea, like in time, where you have this generation who had kind of gotten used to this idea of seeing themselves reflected in film. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly, 
here's a chance to see yourself reflected in a film that's not just trying to tell jokes. Mm-hmm. That's really like saying you're a person. Right. Like, how much is that going to mean as an audience? Well, I, one of the things I think The Breakfast Club resonated with my generation when it came out was that we weren't used to seeing ourselves on screen. Because when I go back, I don't, I don't recognize any of the characters from Fast Times. And I'm from California. I'm from Southern California. Although, I, you know, I only spent three months of high school in Southern California before I moved to Northern California. But I did not recognize the people in Fast Times. I did not recognize the people in, in Last American Virgin. I did not recognize most of the people in Sixteen Candles. The thing is that I think that the, the most of the teen comedies of the eighties were gross generalizations, but and 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 I and I did not like most of those. I mean, I like Fast Times because of its attitude, that it because of its because of its cynicism, you know, because that was you know because when Fast Times came out, I was I just finished ninth grade and in in the school system I was in down here in Long Beach in the early 80s ninth grade was was still junior high yeah so I was going from junior high to high school when when that movie came out and and that and 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 then when I was in started high school down here in Long Beach you know I was going to a, a upper middle class high school in an upper middle class neighborhood um, this was the year that George Duke Majin was um, elected governor of California, and George Jr. was one of my classmates at Woodrow Wilson High School here in Long Beach. And you know, then he disappeared because they were getting ready to move to Sacramento, you know. And uh, and but that's the type of school that I went to. I went to an upper middle class school, and a lot of these movies maybe dealt with people who were in a different class than I was. In terms of, because you know, the house that I was living in, you know, my my parents were in real estate. My well, my dad and uh, stepmom were in real estate at the time. He drove uh, a caddy, and he had a old Porsche convertible. She was driving Mercedes 280 SL. We lived in a duplex that we owned. I mean, I was I grew up upper upper middle class, maybe even upper class. Um, and a lot of the characters I didn't recognize because I was in a different class than most people. I recognized Andy from Breakfast Club. I recognized um, who's the, what's the wrestler's character? The Emilio Estevez character? Um, uh, that's Andy. No, no, Andy's the girl. Isn't it? Isn't her mm, name Andy? Don't believe so, no. Oh god, now I'm, I'm, now I'm going to feel like an idiot. But that's how many, that, you know, I haven't watched it in, in a couple of years now. No, that's I okay. Can... But yeah, like, you to your point, right, like these earlier films that had come along, these sort of teen sex comedies, as much as I might enjoy them or see them as representative of like the crazy Claire, man. Claire, she was Claire, he was Andy. Yep, and it's but I recognize the princess and the athlete. I knew them. John Bender, my best friend in junior high, was a John Bender. I was gonna say everyone. He wasn't, he wasn't John Bender specifically, but you know. Uh, but he, he had he had the long hair. He smoked even though he was 14. Um, he listened to, to Led Zeppelin incessantly. I wasn't a big Zeppelin fan yet. But Steve was the Bender character. I was say, everyone 
new people who could fit into that. Yeah, right? and then and then I was definitely a mixture of Brian and Allison. Yeah, and it's to your point, rightly, you've got all these movies in front that show these sort of like cartoon characters, mm-hmm. basically. Like, yes, you have teenagers on screen. Because that's been decided that in the wake of these successes, that that's how you draw the youth audience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just this point that I keep coming up with, they hadn't been presented as people. Mm-hmm. And that this is the first time where we stop and we take it seriously. And it, in some ways, it's almost kind of the last time we do that. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, Hughes doesn't even hang out in that lane. He immediately shifts to Ferris Bueller. Mm-hmm. And, like, again, don't get me wrong, I love Ferris Bueller. It's, but, again, Ferris is, again, but I, Ferris recognize, is, but I recognize those characters as well. I recognize mm. those characters as well, but I also recognize that Ferris Bueller is a cartoon character. Very and, much. But the <laughs> thing is that he is not that much of a cartoon character. He's a cartoon character. Cameron is not a cartoon character. And that's where you do get that human connection inside that film, right? Oh, I'm no, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, with zero degree of of irony, Ferris Bueller is a very real character. There, I knew in high school and junior high, I knew Ferris Bueller's. Oh, the, I knew the super rich kids who, uh, who, who, with with so much privilege, it was sickening. Where. They they could get away with murder, and maybe to a certain degree, I recognize Ferris Bueller in myself a lot from when I was younger, before the the real estate market dropped in the in the mid '80s, and my family went from upper class to lower class like that. But I'm telling you, you know, just Ferris Bueller is not a cartoon as much a cartoon character as you think he is. He is very much to me, he is a very real character. I will say, I knew Ferris types. I think the character of Ferris <clears throat> is that type ratcheted up occasionally to cartoon character oh, level. I'll because, okay, I'll because, that because that's what the film is trying to do, right? right? Like, the film is trying to be lighter and more of a comedy and throw you a lot of set pieces mm-hmm. and take you a lot of different things. And, again, I love that, you know, Sausage King of Chicago right. and all that. It's got a bit of the humanization of Breakfast Club, but it doesn't go all in on that. And I, I'm i really hard-pressed, and I'll admit, I haven't seen Chocolate War. Okay. Um, so that's now on my list of things I definitely need to see. You definitely need to see Chocolate War. I definitely need to see that. It's this thing that it becomes very hard, even with the success of Breakfast Club, to convince studios to go all in on this idea of kind of serious movies for teenagers because right. they're like that's not what that audience wants right. and I don't know that that's true because A obviously this was a huge hit that has remained so where like I would say as much as I enjoy a lot of the huge stuff like how much of that has just sort of fallen out of the canon over time mm-hmm. right like this it, it is telling that the two that survive are are Breakfast Club mm-hmm. And Ferris, mm-hmm. right? And what even as I'm saying here, right? Like Ferris has a lot of cartoony moments or moments where it's ratcheting up into a hyper stylized reality. Right. There is still heart and humanity at the core of it in the relationship between Ferris and Cameron, right. and especially in the development of the character of Cameron. And 
some of that's the acting of Alan Ruck, mm-hmm. right? Alan Ruck is so good in that movie. Mm-hmm. But some of that is coming from the writing and directing. And I do think that, you know, that kind of coming back to the point I made long ago, um, this idea that certain material or certain directors can sort of help to elevate you. Like, is it not an unsurprising thing how many people give some of their best performances in John Hughes movies? Mm-hmm. Why? Because John Hughes apparently had an ability to connect with people right. and not only to write you great lines, but then to help you understand what it was about them mm-hmm. that was helping to motivate you and so that you could give the performance that felt lived in like you were that character. Yeah, I mean, you look at uh, Anthony Michael Hall. And with that, we're going to conclude this episode here. We'll pick up the conversation on our next episode. We will talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, hosted, and edited by Edward Havens with special guest Michael Horrigan. As we are an independent podcast without a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The FilmJerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. As you